Thank you, Spencer. Let me invite you to open your copy of God's Word to Mark chapter 8. Today we will have the uh, privilege of uh, finishing chapter 8. And even though this is the second half of chapter 8, it's actually the beginning of a new section in the book of Mark. Uh, Things begin to change a little bit, beginning in verse 22 and uh, spreading into chapters 9 and 10. Jesus is going to spend less time with the crowd and more time with his disciples. A definite uh, different trend here in these middle three chapters. Also, he'll start mentioning uh, the cross, and we'll see him lined up in the city of Jerusalem at the very end of, at the very beginning of chapter 11. So a new section in Mark uh, has a lot to do with discipleship, and I'm sure it will be helpful uh, to all of us as we begin this part. Let me mention uh, what's coming up. Um, next uh, Lord's Day, I hope to be out of town, so Pastor Brian will be preaching. Uh, he, I believe he's going to preach uh, two more sermons from the book of Job. And uh, I enjoyed his sermons on Job, and I know many of you voiced your uh, enjoyment of that as well. So Brian uh, will uh, land on Tuesday and then get right up into the pulpit on Saturday, Sunday, rather. But he's a young man, and he can do that. So uh, I encourage you to uh, listen to his next two sermons on the book of Job. All right, let's read our passage this morning. Mark chapter 8, verses 22 to 30. Hear the word of the Lord. And they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, Do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes. His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home, saying, Do not even enter the village. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. And he asked them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, You are the Christ. And he strictly charged them, to tell no one about him. This is God's inerrant word, his authoritative word, his inspired, breathed out words. Uh, May he uh, attend to his word, help us understand it in this time ahead. Let's pray and ask for his help this morning. Lord, as we have in Psalm 119 today, revive us according to your word. Uh, We pray that you would open our eyes, that we might behold wondrous things from your law. We need your Holy Spirit to to accomplish this in us. So Jesus, give us sight. Give us understanding of your truth. Oh, Father, may we 
love your word as deeply as the author of Psalm 119 did. Uh, Give us hunger and thirst after you, Christ Jesus, this morning. Uh, Do strengthen us to hear and strengthen me to preach. Jesus, I ask in your name. Amen. Low vision rehabilitation is a service for those with severe vision loss. Uh, This rehabilitation attempts to help people to take advantage of what little eyesight they have left and also hopes to train them uh, skills on how to function better in life. One day, a 35-year-old insurance salesman came into one of these uh, centers, the Vision Rehabilitation Clinic in Providence, Rhode Island. Since he was 10 years old, he had only had 1% of his vision and had gone through life with everything kind of existing in a gray shadow for him. But at this clinic, when one of the uh, technicians uh, slipped a pair of magnifying lenses on his nose, his jaw dropped in amazement. He exploded. Oh, praise God, look at what I can see. After all the years of vision loss, he described it as a, as a miracle and the greatest thing that ever happened. But minutes later, he phoned his wife and said, Honey, I'm coming home to see what you really look like. <laughs> Some of us have admitted a similar need for clearer vision, though much less severe than this man. Uh, and that's why we wear glasses, many of us today. There's another sense in which you and I need to see more clearly. You and I need a clearer sight of spiritual things, and especially a clearer sight, a clearer grasp, and better understanding of Jesus Christ. God's Word tells us in the book of Colossians, chapter 2, that in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. That means when it comes to Christ, there is always more to see. Well, there are two parties that need clearer sight in our passage today. And through these two parties, I hope to convince you that when it comes to Christ, you and I need clearer sight as well. When it comes to Jesus, there is always more to see. The first party involved is a blind man in the city of Bethsaida. Uh, There are two things I want to point out to you about this blind man. The first thing is that his vision goes from blind to blurry. Look at verse 22 with me in in your word, in your Bible. And they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. Uh, Here we find that Jesus and the Twelve have sailed to yet another location. I realize this is small, but I have to make it this small so you see all the places we're going today. Uh, Last time we saw them in around this area, uh, uh, Magdala, uh, Mark calls it Dalmanutha, um, and here they've crossed the sea, and they are here at the very northernmost point of the Sea of Galilee in the city of Bethsaida. That's also where the mouth of the Jordan River is. And in this far 
northern place uh, is where we find them today. It was a fortified city built strongly to withstand attack. And uh, some scholars think that Jesus and his men uh, were avoiding the city and had gone to the outlying settlements beyond the city walls. And of course, there were many of those. So somewhere in the vicinity of Bethsaida, this fortified city, there's some people who bring their blind friend to Jesus. And Jesus, of course, has become widely known as a healer. And his friends beg Jesus to touch their blind friend, believing that that's how the healing takes place. Several of Jesus' miracles involved his personal touch, uh, leading to people to assume that he had to touch people. Back in chapter 5, we heard uh, the woman in the crowd say, uh, if I touch even his garments, I'll be made well. And the friends of the deaf man in chapter 7 also begged Jesus to lay his hand on him. So believing that touch was necessary, they also begged Jesus to, to lay hands on their friend. Uh, they begged him to touch him. Now, this miracle it will ring a bell to you. It is very similar to uh, the healing of the deaf man in chapter 7. It is different. It's a separate event. Uh, Jesus, Jesus heals a deaf man there, but he uses some of the same things. Some of the same things repeat uh, from his healing of the deaf man. Uh, and Jesus here partially restores the blind man's sight. Notice verse 23 now. And he took the blind man by the hand, led him out of the village. This is the same thing he did with uh, the deaf man. He also, uh, it says, verse 23 goes on to say, and when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, do you see anything? Uh, Jesus' spittle was also involved in healing the deaf man. You remember he put his uh, fingers in the man's ears. This, uh, on this occasion, as unpleasant as it would sound to you and me in our modern context, Jesus actually spit directly on this man's sightless eyes. And then for the very first time we see in the Gospels, Jesus asked the subject of the miracle if his miracle worked. Do you see anything? Verse 24 gives us the result. And he looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. His reply tells us that he's not always been blind. He knows what people look like, and he knows what trees look like. He can see the shapes, but he can't see clearly enough to identify the people who are probably the disciples standing nearby. They might as well have been trees. So he can see, but he can't see clearly. His vision is blurry. So he goes from blind to blurry in this first thing. And then second, we see him go from blurry to bright. Uh, wanting to stress that the blind's man, blind man's vision was completely restored, Mark is going to use three verbs to describe this complete recovery. Look now in verse 25. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes. That phrase means that he opened his eyes wide. Uh, he looked intently. And then the next phrase, his sight was restored. 
meaning it was uh, reverted to its original function. It was put back in its former state. He could now see like he once did before, actually probably better than he's, than he's ever been able to see. And lastly, Mark tells us he saw everything clearly. He fixed his gaze on something. He looked intentively, probably at those people that looked like trees, um, which, again, I, I suggest as the disciples, and this shows us just how completely Jesus has healed this man. And then finally, verse 26 wraps this up, and he sent him to his home, saying, Do not even enter the village. He's led the man out of the village, and now he wants him to go directly home. This means that the miracle, in this case, is probably performed for the benefit of the disciples, because they witnessed the miracle, they saw what Jesus did, and it was probably for their benefit. This is the only place in the New Testament where Jesus heals someone in two stages. And for years and years, people have wondered why. And a lot of ink has been spilt in scholarly journals trying to explain why Jesus used two stages at this point. It certainly wasn't because this was an especially difficult case and took Jesus two attempts to heal the man. It's not because it was really hard to heal him. I mean, after all, in Exodus 4.11, uh, it says, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? This was not a difficult case for Christ that required two attempts to get it right. Well, then why does he do this really unusual thing for for Jesus, at least, uh, usually his miracles are instantaneous. Dr. Sinclair Ferguson suggests that like many of his miracles, uh, this miracle was a sign. It signified something. It stood for something. Since the twelve were the only people around, remember those are the people who looked like trees, it's likely that this sign was for them and that Jesus performed this miracle for their benefit. It was also a sign to them that they needed clearer sight because the 12 is the second party involved here uh, in this. Uh, this miracle was a sign that they also needed clearer sight. While it's true that the disciples could see some things. In chapter 4, right above this, uh, well, in, in chapter 4 uh, that we looked at many weeks ago, Jesus told them, to you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God, but for those outside, everything is parables, in parables. Let me see if I can figure out my slides here that I put together. All right, here's the 12. All right, so they could see some things, but their perception of who Jesus was was, was still blurry. Just last week, in fact, uh, up in verse 17, 
Jesus says to these men, to whom the secret of the kingdom of God has been revealed, he says to them, do you not yet perceive? Remember, they're, they're having a discussion about forgetting bread. Jesus, who had just fed 4,000 people, and, and they're wondering, where are we going to get bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? And just as our blind man's vision went from blurry to bright, so the twelve also needed their vision to go from blurry to bright. They had a rough idea of who Jesus was, but they needed clearer sight. Let me point out three things having to do with the twelve. The first is the report. Jesus asked the, the twelve to report on who the people thought he was. Look at verse 27 in your Bible. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. Let me pause and point this out to you, that they're now much further to the north. They were here, and now they've traveled all the way up here. This is why I needed the big map. This is probably 100 miles away from Jerusalem, down here somewhere. Um, it was a... Um, a thoroughly pagan city. It was a Hellenistic city. In other words, they didn't practice Jewish culture. They practiced Greek culture. Um, and like last time, it says that they don't enter the city limits. They confine themselves to the outlying villages of Caesarea Philippi. So they're in the vicinity of this, but verse 27 goes on to tell us, and on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? On the way, I, I want to pause there. That little phrase pops up six times in these two and a half middle chapters. And it not only describes where Jesus and his men are in their journey, they are eventually on the way to Jerusalem, but on the way also describes where they're at in their journey as disciples. The earliest Christians in Acts describe their movement as the way. In Acts 8, Luke describes how Paul would search for Christians. It says, so that if he found any belonging to the way men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. This middle section of Mark that we've begun today not only describes their journey to Jerusalem, but also describes the disciples' journey of discipleship. And I want to ask you and point out to you that, friend, are you on the way? Are you still traveling? I pray so. Because your faith is not, not meant to be an introduction to Christ. And however you came to know the Lord, uh, it's meant to be an ongoing journey. And that's what On the Way will point out in this center section. And on the way, he asked the twelve, who do people say that I am? And they tell him in verse 28, and they told him, John the Baptist, and others say, Elijah, and others, one of the prophets. Herod thought that John the Baptist had come back to life. 
Other people thought Elijah had come back from the dead. And many others thought, in general, just one of those guys. In other words, they viewed Christ as a powerful spokesman from God, but the embodiment or the reincarnation, actually, of one of the prophets of old. This is the report. And then second, we find the not only the report, um, we go on to see the revelation. And this is what we see in verse 29. And he asked them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, You are the Christ. As Peter often does, he serves as the spokesman for the twelve. This is not just Peter's opinion, but he's speaking for the twelve as a group. Their collective opinion is that Jesus is the Messiah. Up to this point uh, in Mark, the twelve have uh, referred to Jesus as teacher. This is the first time they call him the Christ. Christ is the Greek version of the Hebrew word Messiah or anointed one. So as many people think, Christ is not Jesus' last name. It's his title. Jesus the Christ. Jesus the Messiah. The disciples have been given some sight. They understand that Jesus is the ruler God promised in the Old Testament scriptures. The disciples, the twelve, understand that he is the king chosen and empowered by God. Matthew's account of this event, uh, this is what Jesus says in the, the book of Matthew, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, Simon son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. That's why I refer to this as the revelation. God had opened the eyes of the blind disciples. God had given the twelve eyes to see that Jesus was God's anointed king. And this is the very thing he must do for everyone who comes to saving faith in Christ. God must open our eyes. God must give us sight. God must give us eyes to see Jesus as our Savior and Lord. His, his word tells us in Ephesians 5. Yeah, it's back way back there. I wondered why Ephesians 5 was... Anyway... Uh, Ephesians 5, this is what Paul says in Ephesians 5. For at one time you were darkness... But now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. And then 2 Corinthians says, For God who said, Let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Any kind of statement like this must be revealed to us by God and it's through the third person of the Trinity, the God the Holy Spirit. This is a universal condition for anyone who comes to Christ, friend. We don't get there on our own. As Jesus told Peter, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven this is Peter's great confession. It's probably the, the epicenter of the Gospel of Mark. These words right here. But as great as this is, it's only the beginning. Because they had a lot 
left to learn. Their eyesight is still blurry. Their understanding of the Messiah is fuzzy. They need clearer sight, and boy, how? And we see this in the next thing, and that's the rebuke that they receive from Jesus. Uh, we see this in verse 30. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And that's putting it mildly. More literally, it says he rebuked them. It's the same way Jesus addressed the demon in chapter 1. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, be silent and come out of him. It's, it's odd and very stern. Why would Christ now, of all times, rebuke the twelve and command them not to say a word to anyone now that they recognize him for who he is, God's anointed king, wouldn't you think that Jesus would want them to, to broadcast it, to rent the local radio station, get this on the air, hire commercial time men, says, no, don't, don't utter a word of this. In, in a very puzzling phrase, he rebuked them. Why would Christ do that? Well, the answer is because their concept of the Messiah is still so blurry. Their vision is far from clear. And Peter goes on to demonstrate this. Look at verse 31. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter right back and said, Get behind me, Satan. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Listen to the way this one man describes Peter's actions here. He says, Peter quickly plummets from the brightest student with his A-plus answer. You are the Christ to class dunce when he insists that Jesus must conform to his expectations of what the Messiah should and should not do. That's why he tells them to say nothing. That's why Jesus rebukes the twelve. They know he's the Christ, but their expectation of what the Messiah would do is clearly wrong. Their vision of the Messiah had been shaped more by national expectations and their own fantasies of political glory than by the word of God. And the concept of a suffering Messiah was foreign to their thinking. And Jesus did not want this false notion in circulation because of how it would incite the crowd. Remember, they did try to force him to be king once. It's clear that just like the blind men in Bethsaida, their vision is still blurry, and they need clearer sight. I wonder if, if Christ might say this to you. Could we ever say 
something as ignorant as Peter here, going from the brightest student to, to the class dunce? What shaped your vision of what Christ is supposed to be like? There's so many things we hear growing up, even in the church, that are incorrect. That if you just have your quiet time seven days a week and spend seven minutes in prayer and clean living, life is going to be great. Until trouble comes. Jesus himself said, in this world you will have tribulation. Christ doesn't measure up to what we're expecting. Some people turn away from him at that point. That's not what I thought. Well, who told you that? Who told you he was supposed to do that? And this is what Jesus is going to do over the next uh, two and a half chapters. He's going to clear their vision. He's going to try to try to teach them what the Messiah is. He, he tells them three times the Messiah must suffer and will be killed at, at the hands of the chief priests and the officials in Rome. And this is true for all believers. All of us need to see Christ more clearly. We read earlier, uh, the psalmist in Psalm 119, obviously a loyal follower of Yahweh, consider some of the things that he said in our scripture reading today. No, that's not the bookmark. Here's the bookmark. Turn my eyes from looking at worthless things. Give me life in your ways. Incline my heart to your testimonies, not to selfish gain. Turn away the reproach that I dread for your rules are good. This man is a loyal follower of Christ. And look at what he says. Open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. Hide not your commandments from me. And so I'm telling you that know Christ here today. The journey's not over, friend. There is a lot more to see. A lot more to see. And the psalmist prayer of Psalm 119.18, open my eyes, uh, could be the prayer of every one of us today. God, let me see. Let me especially see Christ. We need clearer sight. Think about Paul's words here now. Let's see if I have this slide. Oh, wow, look at that. Paul says, uh, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. He's writing to the church at Ephesus. He's writing to believers at Ephesus. I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. Writing to believers, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. 
as believers, they had come to see Christ as their Savior and Lord, and yet Paul prays here that they might be given clearer sight. Sinclair Ferguson comments, Paul recognized that coming to Christ is just the beginning of clear seeing. Just the beginning of clear seeing. Well, I want you to hear... um, a well-known British pastor, J.C. Ryle. Listen to him describe this. He says that this is the manner in which the Spirit frequently works in the conversion of souls. We are all naturally blind and ignorant in the matters which concern our souls. Conversion is an illumination, a change from darkness to light, from blindness to seeing the kingdom of God. Yet, Few converted people see things distinctly at first. The nature and proportion of doctrines, practices, and ordinance of the gospel are dimly seen by them and imperfectly understood. They are like the man before us who at first saw men as trees walking. Their vision is dazzled and unaccustomed to the new world into which they've been introduced. It's not till the work of the Spirit has become deeper and their experience has been somewhat matured that they see all things clearly and give to each part of religion its proper place. This is the history of thousands of God's children. They begin with seeing men as trees. They end with seeing all clearly. Listen, I want to urge you. Well, first of all, I want to urge you, if you have not yet come to know Christ as your Savior and Lord, I want to urge you that you need to be given sight. And as Jesus said to Peter, this must be shown to you by God. He must open your eyes that that you see your condition, that, that your sin separates you from a holy God. And that Christ became the payment for that sin, and he died to pay for that sin on the cross. But you that have done that, I I pray and urge you to not think that you've seen everything. Because none of us have. Some Some of us have Oh, we've, we're not on the way anymore. We're not on the way. We've settled into our recliner. And uh, we've kind of stopped traveling. But there is so much more to see. It says, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Are you telling me? Are you suggesting you've reached the bottom of that? Nobody in their right mind would suggest such a thing. That you know all there is to know about Christ. Look, this summer, it's a time when we relax. Uh, School's out. Um, You know, maybe a little more time spent with the family. Uh, time away on vacation or a few days out of town with relatives or whatever. 
Don't take your foot off the gas. Don't let go of the idea that you need to see more. And there's plenty more to see. Christ is where are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And may he give us all clearer sight of him. How would I go about this? How would I go about this? Well, I would ask for it. As ridiculous as that sound, I would just pray and ask God to give it to you. Admit if you're if you've gotten weary of looking, um, Father, I, I've I've grown tired, I've grown weary, and I confess I've stopped looking for Jesus. I want to, but I just can't. Give me the want to, and help me to see Your Son portrayed in the Word. And that's the second application. There's, there's one place in particular you're going to find Christ, and that's in his word. Open up a gospel. Read back through what we've seen of Mark so far and ask the Lord to open your eyes to see Jesus in his word. The gospels are by no means the only place. You will see him all through the scriptures, Old and New Testaments. But look there. Uh, and not some... Uh, flaky other place. He will not appear on your ceiling or on your tortillas or any other bizarre thing like that. He will show you himself in his word. And thirdly, so ask for it. Read the word for this clearer sight. And three, tell those younger in the faith what you found, beginning with your children, of course, uh, or younger believers here at New Covenant. You know, the book of Ephesians, Paul says some amazing things. He describes the riches of his grace. And he describes the un immeasurable riches of his grace. He describes the unsearchable riches of Christ. And Paul spends six chapters telling the, the, the believers in the church at Ephesus, look what I've seen. Look what I have seen. Paul was privileged. He was an apostle. Uh, but we have what Paul wrote. And we can read what he wrote. And we can see the riches he's talked about. Start in Ephesians. And circle the word riches every time you come to it. The unsearchable riches of Christ. Unsearchable is an important word. You know what it means? It means there's no end to it. A thirst you have. There will not the riches to satisfy that thirst will not run out. He will quench it when you look to him. So if you're not hungry for that, 
John Piper says sometimes we're not hungry because we've been nibbling at the table of the world. Look, you ate too many cookies this afternoon. You spoiled your dinner. Remember your parents, don't spoil your dinner. As if we could, they'd force it down our throats anyway, right? <laughs> All those children in China. And so here's what, here's what you may need to do to have clearer sight of Jesus. You might need to fast. Whoa! What are you talking about? I'm not talking about going without food. I'm talking about fasting from something that is distracting. Fast from social media. Wow! What would that be like? I mean, it's about nothing, pretty much. And what are you hungrier for? Facebook or the unsearchable riches of Christ? If it's a distraction, yeah, fast from it. I pray that even this summer, we would have clearer sight. Let me pray. This is what I pray for us today, Heavenly Father. Clearer sight. May the blind man's case be our case. We see how badly we need it in the 12. Uh, Peter, their spokesman, how, how, how desperately we need clearer sight of Jesus. May we taste him who is the, where all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are located. May we taste the unsearchable riches of Christ, Heavenly Father. Give us this desire and reveal him to us in your word. And help us to reveal it to those around us. Jesus, we ask in your name. Amen.